Let's turn our Bibles to uh, the 36th chapter of Jeremiah. In the surrounding chapters, as we have seen, uh, as we've studied the book of Jeremiah, uh, payday has come, and the nation is now on the verge of reaping what it's sown in its rebellion against God. As predicted by Jeremiah, the Babylonians have come and are besieging the city, and uh, the city is on the verge of its final fall. Uh, when the people would go into captivity, when the city would be burned and the temple destroyed in 586 A.D., or B.C., excuse me, 586 B.C. But at this point, we have the 36th chapter, which reverts back to something which took place during the reign of not the final king, Zedekiah, but a previous king, Jehoiakim. And uh, as you go through the book of Jeremiah, you find that the prophecies are not arranged chronologically. But it's interesting that right in the midst of this final besiegement, we have this glancing back, as it were, to something that took place in the reign of the previous king. Uh, when the king, uh, in a very derisive action, uh, cast the prophecies of Jeremiah into the fire. The first thing that we have in this 36th chapter is the recording of all of Jeremiah's prophecies in a book. In verses 1 through 4, God commands this. Verse 1 and 2. It came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. Now, Jeremiah's motive in recording on a scroll all of these prophecies that he's been giving verbally and orally is, of course, number one, the command of God, and number two, his love for his nation and his desire to see his nation not bring down upon it the wrath of God as it is proceeding to do. What is God's motive in commanding Jeremiah to record in one place all of these prophecies? In verse 3, God says, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God's immediate motive was that the cumulative effect of all of his threats and warnings might produce repentance, might cause men, the house of Judah, to turn every man from his evil way, 
His ultimate motive was so that he could forgive them, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God, of course, speaks in human terms when he says, it may be, God knows what will happen. Known unto God are all of his works from the foundation of the world. And God knew what would take place and that they would not repent. But nonetheless, this gets it across to you and I. And this is a human way of expressing it. That as long as God is calling on us to repent, his hand is still suspended. Judgment has not yet fallen. There is yet opportunity to repent. And while God is running the world according to his predestined plan from all eternity, nonetheless, uh, his dealings with us are directly related to our attitude toward him. There's a dynamic relationship. We're not puppets. And we bring his wrath down on ourselves. And it's a genuine call to repentance. And if we repent, we will be forgiven. Now, these things are a great mystery, but both are true. And it's brought before us in a phrase like it may be. Now, the ultimate motive of God, that he might forgive over and over and over, we're told in Scripture, and God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn and live. God doesn't desire that one single human being go to hell. says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet he has decreed that some will go to hell, and that not all will be saved, and that any who do not repent and believe will so perish. Why should God's desires run contrary to God's decrees? That's a great mystery. We must hold to both truths as the scriptures express them. And for one second, let us not give up the fact that there will be ultimate and awful punishment for all who do not repent and turn to God. Nothing could be clearer in Scripture. At the same time, let us not for one moment doubt that God desires the salvation of every man, as he expresses that also. The motive of God, he wants to bring fear to their hearts. He says, maybe if you go and you read all of these prophecies at one time, it'll produce enough fear that they'll repent. You know, most people who turn to God do so out of a motive of fear. If you were to take uh, this group present here, and you were just to go around and say, honestly speaking, you tell me, what, what turned you to the Lord? You'd find that Two-thirds of the group would say, I was afraid of the wrath of God. And there's nothing wrong with that motive. That's a biblical motive. Christ appealed to that motive. Christ said, Fear not them which kill the body, but cannot harm the soul. Fear him that hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him, speaking of God. God reaches us on the motivation level that we need. He knows what we like. He knows our obstinate heart. He knows our love of sin. 
A higher motive would be to turn to God out of just a flat love for God, a love for his, for his fabulous mercy in sending his Son. That would be a higher motive. But God motivates us where we are. He reaches down to our, our level. And one of the motives that are appealed to in Scripture is fear, but it's appealed to because God loves us. He says, you read all of these prophecies at one time so they'll fear me and repent so I can forgive them. And when we speak of the wrath of God, we do it in love for men. When we speak of hell, we do it because God loves men. Christ is the one who had more to say about hell than anyone else in all of Scripture. And we pick this up here as God gives Jeremiah this instruction. Uh, the whole process of motivating people. The recording of all of Jeremiah's prophecies in a book. Now notice the means used to record. How can Jeremiah remember all of the prophecies that we've been studying up to this point? Pages and pages and pages of prophecies. How can he remember all this that's not recorded? In uh, verse 4, Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. Jeremiah just sat there and rattled it off. How did he do that? Calvin says, uh, the greater part of so many words must have escaped the prophet had not God dictated them again to him. Uh, that's a phrase that we need to be careful with, the word dictate, because Calvin didn't hold, nor do evangelicals today hold, to the idea of uh, the writers of Scripture merely taking dictation. Rather, the mind, uh, the background of the writer himself entered into the writing of Scripture. He used his own faculties. That's why John writes different from Paul and so on. And yet, God so guided the writers by his Spirit, and we don't know the actual method of inspiration, but he so guided their minds uh, that what was written was down to the very words chosen, his word. Plenary, verbal inspiration. Full inspiration extending to the very choice of words. The verb tenses, the question of whether a noun is singular or plural, and so on. That's the Bible's doctrine of inspiration. All scripture is, is given by inspiration of God. Is God breathed is the literal translation of the word inspiration. And you find Christ and Paul basing an argument on uh, the tense of a verb or on whether a noun is singular or plural from the Old Testament. But to go on with Calvin's quote, he says that uh, God dictated them again to Jeremiah. Jeremiah then stood, as it were, between God and the scribe, Baruch. For God, by his Spirit, presided over and guided the mind and tongue of the prophet. Now the prophet, 
the Spirit, being his guide and teacher, recited what God had commanded, and Baruch wrote down. That's the process, apparently, that took place here. We see the recording of all of Jeremiah's prophecies. Second, to the reasons, excuse me, the reading of the prophecies publicly. In verse 5, Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up. I'm in prison. I cannot go into the house of the Lord. Therefore go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth the words of the Lord in the ears of the people in the Lord's house upon the fasting day. And also thou shalt read them in the ears of all Judah that come out of their cities. It may be they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return everyone from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. Uh, We see the object of this reading of the words publicly, that the people might present their supplications to God and return from their evil way again. Uh, in those two phrases, you find what's necessary for pardon. The idea of presenting our supplication to God, casting ourselves on God's mercy. God offers forgiveness, trusting him to give forgiveness, and turning from our evil way. That's repentance. Billy Graham has a new book out, just off the press, How to Be Born Again. And uh, in it, he discusses uh, the acts of repentance and faith. He speaks of the key word, repentance. He talks about the fact that repentance wouldn't do any good were it not for the death of Christ. We could repent forever. And had Christ not died for our sins, God could not be a forgiving God. He says, we've heard so much about roots. The roots of man's individual and corporate problems lie deep in his own heart. We are a diseased human race. This disease can only be dealt with by the blood of Christ. Just as the Old Testament blood was shed on hundreds of altars, looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ would come and be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He became the cosmic scapegoat for the entire world. All of our sins were laid on him. This is why God can now forgive us. So that is the atonement as the basis of God's forgiveness. But then he goes on to talk about repentance as an essential ingredient on our part. He says... uh, Repentance involves simple recognition of what we are before God, sinners who fall short of his glory. Second, it involves genuine sorrow for sin. Third, it means our willingness to turn from sin. You notice the way it was phrased by Jeremiah, to turn everyone from his evil way. Our willingness to turn from sin is a matter of the will. It's not how successfully we turn. It's the willingness. God will enable us uh, to repent and to turn and to gradually overcome. But it's that surrender of will. I can give my will to God, and I do. That's 
repentance. And then he says a second key word, faith. He says, in considering conversion, we've seen it has a turning from side, turning from sin, called repentance. It also has a turning to side called faith. Faith is, first of all, belief. Belief that Christ, who was who he said he was, the Son of God. Second, faith is belief that he can do what he claimed he could do. He can forgive me and come into my life. Third, faith is trust an act of commitment in which I open the door of my heart to him. I put my trust in him to forgive me, in effect. So this is what's being brought out here by Jeremiah, this turning and in, in supplication and repentance, seeking God's forgiveness. The obedience, Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him reading in the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. And he did it on a fasting day when all the people were present. It took great courage to do that. We see the recording of all the prophecies, the reading publicly of these prophecies, the response of some of the princes. In verse 11, when Micaiah had heard out of the book all the words of the Lord... Then he went down into the king's house, into the scribe's chamber. Lo, all the princes were there. And he named some here. Then Micaiah declared unto them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book in the ears of the people. Therefore all the princes sent Jehudai uh, unto Baruch, saying, Take in thy hand the rule wherein thou hast read in the ears of the people, and come. So Baruch the son of Neriah took the roll in his hand and came unto them. They said unto him, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So he read it in their ears. Now it came to pass, when they had heard all the words, they were much afraid, both one and another, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us, how didst thou write all these words at his mouth? Baruch answered, He pronounced all these words to me with his mouth, and I wrote them with ink in the book. They didn't have a book like we do. They had scrolls, but they refer to it here as a book. Uh, The response, they listen, they fear, they question the process, and as he tells them the process, they become convinced this is from God. Now the reaction of the king and his courtiers, uh, his princes. In uh, verse 20, they went into the king, into the court, and they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elisama the scribe and told all the words in the ears of the king. So the king sent Jehuda to fetch the roll, and he took it out of Elisama the scribe's chamber. And Jehuda read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month. There was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehuda had read three or four leaves, he, the king, cut it with a penknife. He leapt out of his chair, he goes up, he grabs a scroll, he cuts it with his penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth. Then he'd have him read a few more, and he'd cut those, and he'd throw them into the fire until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. 
He takes his penknife to the Bible, and then he burns the Bible. Of course, the action here was unique, but the attitude is typical of many. And many over the years have attacked Scripture, have taken the penknife, have cut out the early chapters of Genesis or uh, anything they didn't like, cut out hell, cut out election. And uh, it's a disposition of heart that's characteristic of many. In uh, the history of most of your major denominations, as has been traced by Harold Lenzel in his book, The Battle for the Bible, you'll find where in most of your major denominations the penknife has been at work, often beginning in the boards of Christian education or in the seminaries, as men begin to cut away at the authority of Scripture. Of course, that's why we left our former denomination, one of the reasons. The penknife had been so at work and continues to be at work. In his book, The Battle for the Bible, Lenzel, though, went on to speak of that kind of treatment in the house of the friends of the Bible. He mentions a strange case of Fuller Seminary, Fuller Seminary founded in 1947 with Ockengay as the president in absentia. Uh, Charles E. Fuller, the great uh, old-fashioned revival hour evangelist, giving the money to uh, pull together the faculty and so on. And a great seminary founded for the defense of Scripture, scholarly defense of Scripture. And uh, Lenzel... A uh, member of that original faculty and at, time, uh, at times acting president of the seminary, and uh, now the editor of Christianity Today and no longer on the faculty there, trace the, the gradual uh, inroads there at Fuller Seminary of the Penknife, uh, culminating in uh, the recent publishing of a book by Paul Jewett, one of the faculty members entitled Adam, Male and Female, in which he... Uh, takes the feminist position on equality. It says that the scriptures do not teach that uh, that the husband is in authority over the wife and uh, sets Paul the rabbi against Paul the theologian, uh, saying that in one passage Paul hadn't outgrown his Jewishness, which thought of woman as uh, inferior to man, but uh, by the time he writes another passage, Galatians, where he says, uh, we're all one in Christ, and in Christ there's neither male nor female, bond nor free, so on. By now, Paul the theologian has overcome Paul the rabbi. He sets scripture against scripture, Paul against Paul. And uh, this case was rather thoroughly discussed by Lenzel. An answer was written uh, in the Theology News and Notes magazine published by Fuller Seminary. They give their statement of faith that each professor signs on the back. Section number three, Scripture is an essential part and trustworthy record of this divine self-disclosure. All the books of the Old and New Testaments given by divine inspiration are the written word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. They are to be interpreted according to their context and purpose, 
and in reverent obedience to the Lord who speaks through them in living power. And yet we see the leeway that seems uh, present there on the faculty in spite of signing something like that to write a book like Jewett wrote. A defense is made, uh, a number of defenses in this issue. One is made by William Lasor, who was also one of the original members of the faculty. And uh, Lasor says the problem arises over the obvious contradictions in Scripture. And he gives an illustration. And there are numbers of illustrations like this in any translation of the Bible that you'd come across. New American Standard, RSV, King James, Phillips. He says there are numerical inconsistencies. For example, 2 Samuel 10.18 reads, And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David slew of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots. But the same account is recorded in 2 Chronicles 19.18 and reads, The Syrians fled before Israel, and David slew of the Syrians the men of 7,000 chariots. 700 verses 7,000. An obvious error in the Bible. How shall we handle that? Well, he points out that the traditional way of handling that among evangelicals, those who believe the scripture to be an error, has been to say the original autographs, the original writings of scripture were without error. That was what was immediately inspired by God. But in the transmission of the text, the copying of the text, and the translation of the text, errors have crept in. He says that really uh, somewhat begs the question and isn't an adequate response. Clark Pinnock, presently teaching in Vancouver at uh, Regent College there, in his book, Biblical Revelation, the foundation of Christian theology, speaking of the inspiration of Scripture, discusses this whole matter of the original autographs, the original writings. And uh, he says, a little reflection reveals the distinction is quite sound. Few are prepared to claim inspiration for the copyists or translators of Scripture. There's nothing absurd about an infallible text imperfectly transmitted. If there is good evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible as it came from the hand of God, and there is, the entire testimony of Christ, remember Christ is the one who sets forth your biblical view of inspiration as much as anyone, he would say, the scripture cannot be broken. Not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He says, uh, The entire testimony of Christ and the apostles referred to above, and there is no evidence for the inspiration of copyists or translators, and there is none, then it follows quite logically that such a distinction must be made. Augustine showed good sense when he remarked, I have learned to yield such absolute respect and honor 
only two canonical books of the Scripture, those that we would have in our Bible. Of these do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. And if in these writings I am perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty, meaning I have an imperfect copy of what was originally written, or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said, or I myself have failed to understand it. And so, says Pinnock, what we ought to argue for is difficulties, not errors. Many of these difficulties have been solved and are being solved. As further manuscripts come to light or as, as uh, more study is made, uh, the high degree of purity in our present text, even the King James, is a demonstrated fact. Textual corruption is slight and inconsequential. There's simply no room for pessimism. Uh, the, <clears throat> the problem is removed for evangelicals when they insist on the distinction between original and copy. A copy which is substantially like the original can function like the original itself. Francis Schaeffer, in his little book, No Final Conflict, he says, it's my conviction that the crucial area for discussion in evangelicalism in the next several years will be the scripture. At stake is whether evangelicalism will remain evangelical. We must say, if evangelicals are to be evangelicals, we must not compromise our view of scripture. There is no use of evangelicalism seeming to get larger and larger if at the same time appreciable parts of evangelicalism are getting soft at what is the central core, namely the scriptures. And uh, he says, in effect, uh, no final conflict. There's no final conflict between science and the Bible, any other discipline and the Bible, that God, who is the author of nature, is also the author of scripture. And when we rightly understand nature and we rightly understand scripture, there's no final conflict. And uh, we need to really cleave to this point. He says there's the danger of evan evangelicalism becoming less than evangelical, of it's not really holding to the Bible as being without error in all that it affirms. Holding to a strong view of scripture or not holding to it is the watershed of the evangelical world. same time, we need to realize that uh, these men, for instance, Paul Jewett is a brother in Christ, and uh, treat him as such, even while disagreeing strongly with his position. We see what the reaction of the king was. He cut the Bible with his penknife. Let's notice what his reaction was not. Uh, it was not that he cut his own clothes, that he rent his garments. It says, uh, verse 24, yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments. The same word, cut, uh, nor cut their garments. Uh, Neither the king nor any of his servants that heard these words. Uh, here's this hardness of heart. 
Why? Why are men hardened against the word of God? When it speaks of the wrath of God that will fall on us due to our sin. Uh, Well, Jesus said, this is the condemnation of the world. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They want to cleave to their sin. They don't want to give up their sin and turn and do God's will. It's too costly. And the reason they react so vehemently against Scripture is it condemns their sin. It unsettles them. They're afraid that it may be true. And it somehow returns their sense of security when they can take the penknife to it and throw it into the fire. But it's folly. It's folly. The rewriting of the scroll. In verse 27, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll, and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, write it, write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast? Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day of the heat and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. Since Jehoiakim, with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ, there has been no successor to sit on the throne of David. He was the last king of that land. Zedekiah was his uncle who succeeded him. Uh, So here's the punishment. Uh, He punishes him, his servants, and the entire nation. I will bring upon them, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the men of Judah, all the evil that I pronounced against them. That's interesting that we find this located now right in the center of that section of the book of Jeremiah that has the city under its final besiegement. He threw the Bible into the fire, these prophecies into the fire, but he couldn't prevent the fulfilling of them. God simply has it written again and then carries it out. Jesus said in John chapter 12, If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. No matter what attitude we take toward the word of God, if we rebel against it, it will be our final judge. It will stand and we will fall. Let us learn to tremble at the word of God. To this man will I look, says God. He that is of a humble and contrite heart and trembleth at my word. Let us learn to use all diligence and courage in making that word known, no matter how men react against it. Uh, Let us learn the proper use of the motive of fear. And that as we use that motive of fear, 
We use it because we love men. That's the way God uses the motive of fear. Let us fear for our nation. Our nation is in the very same position that that nation was in. It has, in so many ways, rejected the word of God. But that word that prophesies doom to every nation that rebels against God will be carried out if our nation does not turn. Our representatives in the highest courts of the land speak for us in their actions. When they treat the Bible and its commands with disrespect, the nation is in effect represented. And it's a solemn thing. Let us pray for our leaders. Let us repent and believe ourselves. Turn every one from his evil way. Put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. If you've never done that, that's the starting place. That's the most patriotic thing you can do as a beginning, is to commit your own life to Christ. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, if you've never surrendered your will to Christ, never placed your trust in him, why not start that right now? Why not just turn and say to Christ, Lord, I do repent. I want to turn from my evil way. Turn thou me, and I will be turned. I want your forgiveness. I cast myself on your mercy on the basis of your death for my sins. Come into my life. Amen.